Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Always the same intro. We're here to tell you. It's what we know. It's what we love. <laughs> it's comfort. It's safety. It's home. Indeed. You know. It feels good. I guess we could If say, I said anything else, it'd feel wrong, you know? Well, you're going to have to tell the people who you are. I'm Maura. I'm Chloe. This is Historically and Badass Broads. Welcome. Welcome. What do we do here? We're, we talk about awesome ladies from history that you may have heard of. Maybe you mm-hmm. haven't heard of, mm-hmm. but either way, we should talk about more. Yeah. This is how we do that. <laughs> Love that. Concise, to the point. Thank you. Um, how is your Women's International Women Lady History Month? It was wonderful. Thank you. I got... Was the whole month very womanly? Frankly, as I am a woman, that is the case mm. for most months, but... Mm. Mm, so true but i felt the need to celebrate our gender more and that was exciting how was yours exciting i kept forgetting and then i would get like a random uh what are those things called you know like the web designs Mm. Mm -hmm. you know like those like like the ones little pictures yeah yeah and like the little like intersectional women holding hands someone going like women this month you know I, I and do, all months. Yeah, frankly. I was going to say, I do slightly object to the celebration of a people or half of a population of an entire planet. <laughs> I, I don't like the relegation of it to a single month of the year. What I do appreciate is that it can help people focus on certain parts of celebrating that half mm. of an entire world's population. For a month. I do appreciate that it's a designated time. I, I think, and perhaps it's just me, and, and to some degree we've started a podcast about it. Uh, I think we should celebrate women all the time. You're right. I, you're definitely right. And hopefully we do. Hopefully <laughs> hopefully that's what we're doing. By the, the sheer number of like nasty women, feminist, you know, shirts I wear in my life, I... I you know, I'm I'm hoping I'm there for the for the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> through through wardrobe choices. <laughs> through my wardrobe choices. Yes. <laughs> I hope I'm always there. Through zero actions, but a hundred percent shirts. hundred percent shirts. <laughs> One sweater. Oh. You gotta mix it up. A, a sweater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just just for the the slightly chillier months. You know how it gets in Southern California? Uh-huh. Yeah, keep repping mid... <laughs> what's what's the coldest month there, January? Honestly, who knows? It changes every year. <laughs> Good for you. It just like this, like this year, it was like, ooh, we had a cold winter. It got down to 50. That's infuriating. I know. I'm aware. I prefer the East Coast. I want to come back. 
Um, yes. <laughs> East Coast forever. Yes. Wow. We're repping all across the U.S. board here. You got to do it. Um, Where's our lady from? Tell me about our lady. I want to know. She's an East Coast gal. No. Yes. Stop. I wouldn't. She's a she's my kin. Wrong state. But wrong right, state. But right, right coast. But right sentiment. Exactly. Exactly. And do you know what? I think um I think she would have been like a cool person to chill with. Okay. Beside the fact that she became slightly agoraphobic in her later years. Uh, whoa, twins. <laughs> We're all getting Hold there, on. guys. We're all getting there. <laughs> if this pandemic has made me anything, it's agoraphobic. <laughs> excellent shout out to shout out to covid Mm. um okay wait tell us who is she we're gonna talk about emily dickinson oh look at that tell us about emily well i do want to say i think i I wanted to do another poet it's national poets month or whatever um again we can celebrate poets all the time in fact we have celebrated poets before phyllis wheatley Mm. the one Mm -hmm. and only um but I was thinking, I'm like, you know what? It might be nice to do a writer. And I was like looking at a little, I was looking at a little Sylvia Plath. I was looking, I'm like, who could we talk about? Who would be great? And then I'm, I started reading more Plath and I went, nope, not for me right now. Um, not good during a pandemic. <laughs> and then I was like, there is really one phenomenally celebrated American lady poet, Emily Dickinson started reading more of her poetry. I have now, in fact, read every single poem that has been published by her, which is quite a few. Um, It's 1800, but... Uh, Okay. Uh Okay. I should have expected, but yeah. Yeah. Um, But what I... Do you feel good about it? I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I read it in such a way that I was like looking for things I liked. I do that kind of thing where I'm like, I want to write down this poet poem so i remember it i don't oh, know why oh i see so i was like yeah. looking for like the ones that called i know to me. why i know why. why for this podcast oh well yeah that too you wanted to bring some some juicy tidbits i did write down some your candy for our for our listeners yeah, yeah exactly um all right so i feel like i didn't absorb her entire oof if you know what i mean of course but i i was so struck by i just I feel like the conversation around Emily Dickinson is so interesting because I feel like something that I've been struggling with is, and as you know, when we talk about other women, I, I I don't always find it that informative or frankly that interesting to talk about their romantic lives, unless of course it actually is part of their life or seemed like it had an impact. If it's just like, "Mm, she dated people, I'm like, I don't really care, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. because that to me seems incidental uh, as opposed to her accomplishments and uh interests and such okay but something that is pervasive in any research about emily dickinson is curiosity about her sexuality it is incessant i you can't get anywhere without someone trying to tell you that they know for a fact that she was gay or that she wasn't or that she was bi or that she wasn't Hmm. and now that that isn't something important for an individual to know and discover and explore. Of course it is, but is it, this is struck, it struck a larger debate within myself as a historian. Is it important for me to try and determine? And I don't think it is. 
And maybe that changes based on each person you study. But when discussing Emily Dickinson specifically, I find it incidental. And it's because she left us work that we were never intended to read. And we already have so much, there's an element of voyeurism that I think is something that a reader kind of gets when they get to read her poetry and her letters because they were never intended to be published. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder how responsible discussions or you know debates about trying to ascertain her sexuality actually are. Uh, my The conclusion I came to for this particular person on this particular day is that I don't care because to me, it has no bearing on the woman. It did for her, but seeing as I can't have a conversation with her and a discussion with her, I'm left with work that already is so much more intimate. And I'm, I think that's where I should leave my interpretation. I don't know. This has been, it's been, it's been a lot of, I've had a lot of internal musings about it. So is it what you're saying is that a lot of the potential clues about her sexuality come from the poems that were more like diary entries to her and and that's why it feels a little less like she it was what she wanted people to talk about is that what you mean Yes and no it, I mean it is in the letter she was obviously a prolific writer with her poetry but also as a letter writer mm-hmm. um and I guess for me, it's just, it's a larger discussion about historians and historiography. It's it's our understanding of, you know, our own past. Would she have had the language to discuss her own feelings toward men or women? I don't think so. Especially when we, we're going to talk about her religious upbringing and the, you know, the times in which she was growing up. I I, I don't know if it's, necessary to have a greater understanding of her or if it's part of a larger element of voyeurism about this woman because I think we weren't supposed to know about her so it feels kind of sneaky you know that we get to read her work or her poetry or it feels a little naughty and I think I mean it does for me because some of her poems are so inquisitive and undetermined she has so much internal debate going on she you know, her poetry, she wrote for years and years and years. She wrote when she was a little girl and she it continued on until, you know, pretty much her death. And I think this is a woman who's using this medium to explore herself and how much of, how, when did it become my responsibility or my task to assign values to her that she herself wouldn't have given to herself? Do you know what I mean? I think so. I mean, I I don't know if you said that we were just going to talk about this later, but I guess I I would be curious how taboo it would be to have thoughts for women because I think if she's struggling with something like that, it could very much influence her psyche, her mental well-being, her Oh, absolutely. Her writing. Oh no, and that's not what I mean. I think she definitely did. That's I'll, I'll assert that argument wholeheartedly. But my mm-hmm. question is there's, there's a label that historians want to give either she was or she wasn't. And I don't think that's an argument that needs to be had. I think, I think what's more important is to read her internal struggle 
than assigning a value. Oh, okay. Okay. Are you just talking about like labels? Yeah. Like deciding what, what what letter of the alphabet she would be under. Exactly. And it's, what's killing me is like every article I'm reading is trying to assert one, you know, trying to say she's gay or she's not one way or the other. And I'm kind of like, Oh, I see. I'm like, that's, why is that what we're talking about? Not that her internal strength, we should be talking about what the, yeah, you're right. There are clues she leaves behind and interesting relationships she had with people of all genders. And I think I'm more curious to discuss that and the impact that that clearly had on a young woman than I am to try and ascribe some label to it. But that's what so much of the literature I've been reading about her seems to be doing. And I find it, I don't like it. I don't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought you were saying that you didn't want to post-mortem decide whether she was queer or not. And I was like, well, if she's queer, it might be important. Oh, no. I definitely think she is. We'll get into that. Oh, okay. 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 No, I simply mean, like, so it's just like- not label. And also, not that it's not an important part of- not, and I'm not, I don't want to ever, I guess I'm trying to say that seems to be the only thing people want to talk about with her. Right, right. Right. And it's like, well, there's more <laughs> like her internal struggles with her faith, I think is also really interesting because obviously those impact each other. Um, hmm. And I, I'm, I'm so curious about the woman. And if you, if you, if anyone does choose to read her poetry, thank you to Project Gutenberg. You have all three collections online for free. Um, Ooh. Oh yes. There's That's I mean, a fun fact. It is a fun fact. And there's a lot of her poetry that you can find in ingest for free. And I find it actually really soothing to read. She, she has a really easy way. She's not writing like deep, you know, you don't have to interpret so much of her like weird classical illusions. Like that's not really happening. She has a couple of them and she has biblical ones, of course. So if you have no background knowledge of it, you might have to look a couple of things up, but it's not like she's writing to be thought of as clever. She's writing for her Mm -hmm. own exploration. And I think that's where we find her popularity. You know, Mm -hmm. it's when you're reading, you're reading a girl, a woman who's trying to figure out what she believes and wants and I love that. We love that. We do. So let's talk about her life. And then we can have, I think, lovely other discussions about her. There's, she's just, it, this has just been, I guess, an ex, my extended explanation of an internal struggle I've been having while doing research on her. And I think it's an interesting conversation. I think it's important to have because I think I'm just going to harp on it for like a second longer. I, it, Please. There's, I wonder how much of an element of historians as tastemakers is present. And now I'm, I'm questioning so much of the work I've researched and read and conducted on my own about how much I've decided I want to determine about someone versus just the sheer joy of the exploration of that person. So that's where I've left myself. (laughs) Oh, you're having, you're having like a full on existential crisis. Completely. Um, great, but you know what? I'm enjoying it because it's actually, it's been fun for me to question it and to question how I've conducted myself in my research and, and what happens when I read a book? What am I trying, when I'm reading a biography of someone, what am I trying to gain out of it? Am I just trying to learn Mm. and explore and enjoy? That's what Mm. I always thought, but how much of it was me trying to decide what I wanted to believe about that person? 
So I feel like you're you're breaking a new level of the video game. Oh dear. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it is I feel like level. you're like your your brain is like on to the next round. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'd like to say that'd be oh thanks, man. I, I hope that's a compliment. Um <laughs> it is, it is. Oh good. It's like, you know, it's like the philosophers when they achieve that that higher level of thinking yeah. where they're like, oh, now we really need to think. Is it chair or is it an idea <laughs> of chair, you know? Or is it just or, a bunch or, of little invisible particles? More likely. Nothing's real. <laughs> is it evidence of my further descent into madness? You decide. Um, the answer to that question is and always will be yes. <laughs> but we knew. Okay. Emily Dickinson was born on December 10th, 1830, into quite a family. The Dickinsons are these very prominent people. They're in Amherst, Massachusetts. That will play a huge part in her life. This town, this region of the country, the Dickinsons are very well known. They're very prominent. They're not very wealthy. One of her grandfathers is one of the founders of Amherst College, they, her ancestors have been there for 200 years. They were part of like the Puritan, the Puritans who came over. Like it's, you know, they, they're waspy to the nth degree, um, but they're not that wealthy. And it's just because so many of the men seem to make really dumb financial decisions. And I like, oh God, I was reading this biography. It's 800 pages. Totally great. But so much of the beginning was like, they did dumb things again. I'm like, all you have to say is the men did dumb things and then we can move on to more interesting discussions. But seeing as the book was written by a man, of course, he had to elaborate. Um, and the, the women are just completely immune to these decisions. Well, they're, uh, he did assert that they were affected by them, which I was like, good for you, buddy. Um, pat on the back. Pat on the back for acknowledging half of the planet's existence. Sorry, I'm fine. Um so there's this family homestead that becomes her haven and so she's born there it's you can visit it it's beautiful um so she she's born into this like i said very prestigious family her father edward it's edward right yeah edward marries emily norcross who's from a neighboring town in massachusetts um, her family's also very entrenched in the local society as, you know, old, uh, Protestant white people who've been there for just so long. Um, mm-hmm. they have, she has an older brother, William Austin. She, in her letters, refers to him as Awe, A-W-E, Cute. or Aust, um, or just Austin. He's never referred to as William, really. And then she's born. So he's born a year before her. Uh, she's born. And then three years later, her sister Lavinia is born. And if you want to ever try and understand the family tree of these people, don't because every single person's named either William, Emily, Elizabeth, Austin, or Lavinia. And it's hell. Um, That's cruel. It, it's like trying to understand the Tudors. There's just Mary mm. and Henry one after the other. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have I'm to? I'm assuming... I'm assuming in the Dickinson family, you don't even have the luxury of, you know, Lavinia the third. No, because women. They're just all Lavinia. They're Lavinia. Well, so actually in letters that, okay, so (laughs) Emily Dickinson's aunt Lavinia, her mother, Emily Norcross's sister, Lavinia Norcross, 
would write letters about her niece, Emily, but refer to her by her middle name, Elizabeth, to not get her confused with her mother, Emily. That's some of what I've been dealing with. (laughs) I gave up. Um, For the record, Lavinia Norcross was born Lavinia Norcross, married her cousin, and thus ended up as Lavinia Norcross. Oh, boy. She died at, like, 48. (laughs) Anyway. You know, is there any chance that we've misnotated history based on this? Oh, yeah. Love that. Oh, yeah. Big fan of that. 100% we have. Great. Just wanted to confirm. it, It happens more when extant writings are less available, meaning pre incunabular We're going, we're going before the 1450s because it, it, writing as a commodity was more expensive, right? So it was mm-hmm. more difficult to keep written records or contain them and maintain them. So we have a lot of, you'll see in earlier accounts will be like Mary. And then in parentheses written by modern historians, this could have been referring to this person could have been referring to this person. We think it's this person by context and then keep going. So that happens a lot. But thankfully as people became more literate in terms of writing and uh, the publication of books became more widespread and the consumption of books became more widespread. Obviously people began to write and read more. They kept better records on their own end. And so we Mm -hmm. have people like Emily's aunt Lavinia discussing her niece, Elizabeth to her sister, Emily. But then we know by context that that person is Emily, the younger Emily Dickinson, the poet. Right, right, right. So we have a little, but there's a hundred percent. Yes. To answer your question in a somewhat roundabout way. Correct. That has happened many times. Gold star. Thank you. <laughs> got I got to drop in something early modern and medieval. It's, it's what I do. Hey, I asked. So she loved music. She loved to play the piano. Uh, she called the piano the music, M-O-O-S-I-C. I think, which Iconic. is really cute when she's really little. She Aww. was a fairly well-behaved child. She's described by her aunt Lavinia as perfectly well and contented. She was a very good child, but little trouble and but little trouble. Um, she received a very good education. Her father actually ensured that she would receive a good education. All of his children were to do that. He was constantly away on business. He was like running for office and doing things I don't really care that much about. They were... They were constantly in a flux of we're doing really well, we're super well off, and we're doing very terribly. Um, So Mm -hmm. it couldn't have been very stable. Her mother was after, I think it was after her sister Lavinia. So Emily's sister. Emily Dickinson, the poet. Had a sister Lavinia after she was born. Emily's mother, Emily. (laughs) Um, I was w- I was with you the first time you said it. Okay, cool. I was just making sure because I just re- I got confused. I confused myself. Um, <laughs> it's fine. Emily's mother, Emily, uh, had a very particularly bad birth, and I think ended up like being really incapacitated for a long time afterward. But she mm-hmm. was very responsible for the maintenance of the house, which in the 19th century is absolute hell. Like I, I don't know how else to describe what it would have been. The the task of doing laundry would take you a week. It is, it is a nightmare. 
and it is actual physical labor. And that's just one of the tasks she would have been expected to achieve without complaint. Um, she was very poorly after her youngest child's birth. I think she, no, I think it was her mother walked with a limp. One of them had such a horrible childbirth that like it left them physically maimed forever because no one cared about women's health. Um, so I think what's really interesting is you see this really interesting dichotomy of her relationship with her father. She, she, always described him in a really lovely way. And then her mom was this like really cold and aloof woman, but you also get that that wasn't the case. It's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. She she writes that like, I have had no mother, but then she also writes about how much she loved her mom. So clearly there are some issues. Um, and her father was actually pretty misogynistic. He wrote and published some pretty horrible things. There was a case he was a part of, where a woman claimed uh, wanted to sue her husband for divorce based on cruelty and desertion. Uh, And he basically asserted that the woman was insane and had beaten herself up. And that's why she shouldn't get a divorce. So that's likely. Yeah. Yeah. um, And that she, in order to defend the person to make sure they couldn't sue for divorce, um, that's what he asserted on the woman. And in fact, she was confined to a mental hospital forever. So, oh, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good guy. I, I have a lot of issues with him, but I think obviously it's her father. He always wrote about his children, wanted to keep up with them, even if he wasn't physically there. Like I said, he was running for office. He was a uh, right in the house of representatives in Massachusetts. I think at one point he ended up serving in DC as well. So there was a lot of movement. Um, she went to Amherst Academy, which like the year before had um, been an only boys school. It had opened a female student. So she was able to be there, um, hmm. which is so cool. Like I said, she had a very good education. Um, and one of her teachers, like 50 years after Emily's, after like they had met, um, wrote that like he remembered her and remembered her inquisitiveness and her efforts to be original that were effortless, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting too. So she was there. She, she worked really hard to be a very, you know, diligent student. And one thing I think is interesting is something that was discussed by main biography that I was reading. My wars are laid away in books. The life of Emily Dickinson by Alfred Habiger. What I think is really interesting is she, her own personal family was not beset with grief, meaning none of her siblings died. Her parents were both alive. That is not the case for her immediate family members, nor for most people in the 19th century. Most people would have lost a child. It wouldn't have been uncommon. Let me just say that. Not most people would not have been uncommon for them to lose at least one child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it, it, it their family, their immediate family was somewhat uh, undisturbed by that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, her a lot of her cousins died. But I think from what I was reading, it seems like her father and her mother were very diligent about. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Health and wellness. And if mm-hmm. there was any hint that someone was sick or anyone around them was sick, everyone had to go to bed immediately and take care of themselves. And I think that's really interesting. It's, it's almost like there's some forethought about germs. Um, yeah. That yeah. seems ahead of its time. It does. It does. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's an interest because I think there's a in that there's an ever present fear of death, though, that I think mm-hmm. sets into Emily that you do see very clearly in her writing. She talks a lot about, you know, she doesn't understand or doesn't know or is curious or is scared about what happens after death. Um one in particular that really traumatized her was her second cousin, Sophia Holland died of typhus in 1844. And they had been roommates at a, um, I think it was Mount Holyoke. Um, it was a female seminary. Um, Mm -hmm. and she was there just for a couple months, but she roomed with her cousin, Sophia. And then her cousin, Sophia dies of typhus. And she was like obsessed with staying with her and trying to nurse her. And then the doctors were like, she's about to die, get Emily out of the room. And then Emily like begged, um, you know, to, to stay with her. She has a quote that it seemed to me I should die too, if I could not be permitted to watch over her or even look at her face. And then Sophia died and she was so desperately depressed. Um, Her parents sent her to Boston to stay with other family members. She, you know, was able to recover slowly from this grief. She started meeting some women who would later become very good friends of hers, Abaya Root, Abby Wood, Jane Humphrey, and Susan Huntington Gilbert, who later married her brother, Austin. In in 1845, there was a religious revival. So these religious revivals happened a lot in the 19th century. Um, Emily, I think it, it basically revolved like people becoming saved. So it was like young and pe- young and old people alike, but mostly younger people that were affecting her would confess their faith and become saved. Mm-hmm. And um, she wrote to a friend the next year, I never enjoyed such perfect peace and happiness as the short time in which I felt I had found my savior. And it did not last. So she never formally confessed her faith. And this is great. Uh, around 1852, she had stopped going to church at all. And she wrote a poem that opens with some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. <laughs> what I think is really interesting is especially when she's at Mount Holyoke, she had a really difficult time there. She, a, she was in really poor health for some of the time, actually. 
and her father was like, come home. You cannot be there. You have a cough, you know? And, and also there was this evangelical revival that was taking place and she, she rebelled against it. And this is the beginning. It's, it's around 1846, seven, eight. She's starting to go like, you know what? I was, well, I was too well behaved as a child. I need to explore myself more. I need to explore and become and and to see what makes me different. And I, I love that about her. It, it's almost a conscious decision that she's like, I was too good as a kid. I need to be, I need to be a little bad. I need to have a little fun. And so she starts to, which is great. Mm-hmm. She, she starts, she comes home. Uh, yeah, it's March, 1848. And then she starts helping her mom with the household stuff and, you know, so on and so forth, blah, blah, blah. And all the while her dad has really interesting, um, you know, colleagues and people who she meets and um, because he is a man about town and whatever. So she has Mm -hmm. all these influences in her life. One of them is a man, Benjamin Franklin Newton, and they had a really interesting um, relationship. It, It, again, some people are like, it was romantic. It wasn't. I'm going to say it's more important to discuss the influence his philosophical leanings had on her than it would be to determine the the nature of their relationship, simply because the letters we have don't touch on that. And I, I'm more interested in um, how she continues to find older men, usually, who help her learn and explore. And I think that's something that's really interesting about her. So Newton is one of the most, you know, kind of main people in her life. And um, he, you know, she has some poetry that she, and she refers to a friend that she had when she was a smaller girl. People think it refers to him. I I don't know if it does, but I think it's a really interesting thought. Um, And so, but her, this is at the point where her absorption of, you know, kind of secular work is becoming really important to her. And most importantly, it seems like she reads Jane Eyre in 1849. I love this. I I was, I love reading Wikipedia. It's like the most fun for me. And I didn't, I can't find this anywhere else. So I really hope it's true. But when Emily Dickinson got her first and only dog, she named him Carlo, which is the character Sinjin Rivers, her in uh, Jane Eyre. That's his dog's name. So I love that. I hope that's true. I really hope it's true too. I really, I'm like, I'm like desperately, I really want it to be true. Um, She also started reading Shakespeare around this time and it became again, really important to her. Mm -hmm. Um, So then unfortunately what happens around the 1850s is more people start dying in her life that she's created relationships with and friendships with. Um, people who were idols to her in an intellectual way. And, you know, also around this time, she begins this fairly intense friendship with Susan, um, Sue, who eventually becomes her Um, Mm sister-in-law. And they sent them, they sent each other many, many letters. And, but they also had periods of time where they like both wouldn't speak to each other for a while. It's a really, they seem to have a very tempestuous relationship. It seemed to be very hot and cold. Um, You know, I, I'm, I'm interested 
I wish there were more letters. Unfortunately, um, there's this douche wad of a lady, Mabel Loomis Todd, who had an affair with Austin, um, Susan's husband and Emily's brother, and like mm-hmm. decided that um, Susan was cruel and should like be the worst. Um, and so that's where that initial idea of like Susan being this extremely cruel and hard and biting woman enters the fray. I think what's more interesting is that she and Emily seem to have just a really intense relationship, whatever it was, it was intense and informed both of their lives very acute, very acutely. Um, Mm -hmm. Sue was also one of the most supportive people of her work and of Emily's work and loved editing and working with her. She herself was a poet. So, you know, I think there's, Oh yeah, I know. I know. Huh? So I think there's a lot to do, but you know, after Emily's death, she instructed her sister Lavinia to burn everything. Like that was, you know, Emily said, I I don't want, you know, none of my correspondence should remain. And a lot of it's been heavily edited. So that's why I almost think it's fruitless to try and ascertain the true nature of their relationship, but instead to focus on the intensity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't disagree. I mean, I do think there's, they talk a lot about kissing each other and letters and she misses her and her heart's, what is it? I, Susie, this is from 1852. Will you indeed come home next Saturday and be mine own again and kiss me? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you. Feel that I cannot wait. Feel that I, that now I must have you. That the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish and my heart beats so fast. My darling, so near I seem to you that I disdain this pen and wait for a warmer language. So that's obvious. Sorry. You know? Yeah. And I think what's interesting too is in one of her poems, there's whether it's the big, again, her poetry is very personal to herself. I don't know if she, if she really intended for people to read much of it. She, some of her more edited poems are the ones she sent to people to have them share, to share with certain friends and family members. Um, And they kind of worked on them, but some of them, the more personal ones are the more intimate ones, obviously. And there's this poem that I wanted to read that I think for me is, is such a beautiful, such a beautiful expression of her exploration of her sexuality. Um, I'm terrible Mm -hmm. at reading poetry, I think personally. So hopefully I do it some justice, but I recommend anyone read it and look it up. Most of Emily's poems don't have titles. You just look up the first line of poetry. So So bashful when I spied her, so pretty, so ashamed, so hidden in her leaflets, lest anybody find, so breathless till I passed her, so helpless when I turned, and bore her, struggling, blushing, her simple haunts beyond. For whom I robbed the dingle, for whom betrayed the dell, many will doubtless ask me, but I shall never tell. Lovely. And and I love that. I think that's so... To me, that is such an essence of her playfulness and her curiosity. And it, yeah, I don't know. I, I love that poem. And I think for me that it's when you read things like that, that you understand 
from my perspective, at least, I'm more interested in having a discussion about the woman than I am about labeling so that I can determine and put her into a category, you know? I don't, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting for me because I didn't read all of the things that you read that labeled her this way or that way. So for me, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it, honestly. But but that's how it should be, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it should just be, it, it, Maybe this is just because the field of history is coming, sometimes can be on the forefront of things and also really slow to catch up on certain things. You know, coming out of the 20th century, I think it's been, there's been more of an emphasis on determinism and like understanding and labeling things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm hoping that's slowly moving out in favor of more nuanced and interesting interpretation, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think of queer as like an umbrella term. Exactly. And also we're, we're a little bit more part of the generation that kind of believes that love is a spectrum and you can love who you want to love and it doesn't really matter. So yeah, it's, it's funny because I'm, I'm listening and I'm like, yeah, of course, who, like, who cares what she was? She, well, she, if she liked women, sure. Great. If she also liked men, great. Who cares? Well, like, and that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm, yeah. And I thought it was interesting because I, I, me personally had that reaction and then historian me was like, but I need to know. And then I was like, wait a minute. No, I don't. What? Oh, mm-hmm. and I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting. Um, so that's where <laughs> that internal struggle began. Oh, totally. <laughs> and also again, like you did a bunch of research and you probably read a bunch of stuff that made you feel this way, but it's, it's, it's yeah, I did. it's funny to, it's funny to be on the other side and to be like, Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're like, why are you harping on about it? I'm like, because you have to read these people. Um, <laughs> no, I believe you. I, I believe that there are a lot of articles out there that were frustrating. It's just, it, it, it's it's um, evidence of a an older line of thought, I think, um, that I'm, I'm hopeful is dying out. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she, Sue... And Emily have this very hot and cold relationship. And then Sue marries Austin in 1856. And they were so unhappy the whole time. Um, Sue has, I think, three kids with him, three or four kids with him. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just interesting. They don't, they all don't live very far from each other. The Edward Dickinson, their father built a home called the Evergreens, which was really close to um, the homestead. And people cite, again, more evidence of an affair between Emily and and Sue, this well-trodden path between the two houses, um, which I actually, I just love. I think that's such a lovely kind of memento of, of a friendship and a relationship is just that there's this like so entrenched in the soil that she you know, people were going back and forth between the houses like that. Um, it's a beautiful visual. Yeah, I think so. I, I really like I'm that. I'm assuming of two related families might visit each other often, but I like I like the imagery of that if it is about the two of them. Well, exactly. I think that's also part of it is just like, well, yeah, you're visiting 
your sister or yeah, your brother. Right, exactly. And exactly. your kids. I know. And that's why, again, that's why I see these articles and I'm like, uh-huh, I see that, but I have about 12 other reasons. Um, but that doesn't, I, I think it just- But it's it, still, it's still a pretty visual. It you is. Know, why not? And it does hint at the nature of the relationship of the family, how close they were. And they really mm-hmm. were. And I do think this starts kind of leaning toward Emily's I will anachronistically call it agoraphobia. She she has not really left Amherst. She's gone like 10 miles outside of Amherst. And then she goes to Washington to spend time with her father in like 1856, 1855, mm-hmm. I think. And um, she spends three weeks there and is just like, ugh, I want to go back home. So <laughs> they end up going back home. Emily's mother becomes has chronic illness after chronic illness. She, she's just not well. Um, Mm. and Emily had to, as, as her mother stopped being able to do a lot of the domestic tasks, Emily had to pick them up and, you know, Emily basically found a way out of having to marry by being engaged with, her with her garden she's actually quite an exceptional um, gardener and one of the other things that was discovered after her death was this like huge bound book of pressed flowers that she accumulated over her life Hmm. um which I think is so cool um yeah and so she she was more pleased with the idea of not being tied down. And I think what's really interesting is because there's this clear, and I guess I'm getting more into poetical interpretation that is obviously highly up to different interpretations. When I read it and when I read about her life, she has this vivid imagination and imaginative inner life that doesn't necessarily reflect her physical life. And yet that doesn't seem to have been of much bother to her. And I think that's so interesting. Um you know, she, she was so engaged. She talked in some of her poems about, you know, basically her indecision about whether or not marriage is good effectively and, and, and ending kind of with a very 19th century. Well, I guess it's good because ladies do it, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and men like it. (laughs) And, um, but in the poem, she's, she's kind of talking about being tied down and losing your voice. As a woman, you lose your voice when that happens. And I think that became the most important thing to her. So much of her poems are about her, her love of nature. And, and I love that. I think that's so interesting to discuss. Um, and so that's, to me, another really interesting part of it is just this engaging dynamism she has with with the world around her, even though she doesn't physically explore it all that much, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so she continues to withdraw physically from like social life and she becomes more and more productive as she does that. And I think that's also really interesting. Um, so she begins talking with a literary critic, Thomas Wentworth Higginson and, um, Basically, they end up having a really interesting correspondence, and he, I think, publishes some of her work, uh, and she's not very happy about it, I think. Um, yeah, she she didn't really want to do it. It was, it was more for herself. Um, and 
she became known as this, like the woman in white. She has a really interesting poem. Um, a solemn thing. It was, I said, um, where she talks about basically what it is to be a woman in white and her identity. And she, she's known for like only wearing white dresses and being this recluse and her dog died and she, he was 16. Um, and she never got another dog. And then their maid left and she was just like left doing all the housework in a more intense way and became more and more reclusive. She would talk to people from one side of the door and not to the other. Um, hmm. And she became this like kind of, you know, phantom that people <laughs> would talk about the like the lady in white. Um, yeah, and I mean, she's making herself very mysterious. Hundred percent. Um, she does continue her writing and her notes and 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 letters and such. And she loved to spend time with her nieces. And um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting too. And to the children in the neighborhood around her, she was really a lovely figure of support. And but you know, her again, she was this kind of interesting figure um and her father dies in 1874 her mother died i believe in 1882 and um she continued writing she she really stopped editing and working on them though and then she made her sister promise to burn everything and Lavinia her sister never actually married and so was able to carry out these tasks um hmm. And, you know, she has a, her favorite of her nieces, um, Austin and Sue's youngest child, Gilbert, or nephew, excuse me, he died. And it seemed like people were just dying around her. She wrote in 1884, the dyings have been too deep for me. And before I could raise my heart from one, another has come. She became more and more sick, although she seemed to have been somewhat sickly her life throughout her life, was confined to her bed. And on the May 15th of 1886, she died at the age of 55. Um, hmm. Her sister Lavinia and brother Austin asked Sue to wash her body. And Sue also wrote Emily's obituary. And it just seems like they knew she would do a lovely job of it. She was laid in a white coffin with vanilla scented heliotrope, a lady slipper orchid, and a knot of bluefield violets. I think a nod to her, you know, great gardening and, and botany interests. And um mm -hmm. band up reading a poem by Emily Bronte. And her coffin was driven through fields of buttercups and a uh, buttercups and was buried in the family plot. And then of course. The family discovers her 18, nearly 1800 poems four years after, uh, you know, after her death. And four years later, they published some for the first time. Um, and she's never been out of print. What do you mean they discovered them? Like they found them under floorboards? I, I think they found it was, it was effectively, effectively like they found a diary, like a huge set of volumes of poetry. Um, how, how, I wonder how it was not discovered for four years. No one really, no, no, it, sorry. It was discovered after her death and then four years later was published. Oh, I see. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
some people and they, some, they knew mm-hmm. they knew she was writing oh yes 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 um okay. so yeah so this is lavinia burned most of her correspondence she didn't emily had left no instructions about the 40 notebooks and loose sheets gathered in a locked chest lavinia mm-hmm. saw how wonderful the poems were and insisted that they had to be published and basically the two sides of the family. So Mabel Loomis Todd, who was Austin's lover, um, Lavinia somehow turned to Austin and then to Mabel Loomis Todd. And then the Todd family and the Dickinson family started just having this feud and the poems weren't really published that effectively. And then Mabel Loomis Todd was the first person to help edit the poems actually when they were, the first volume was printed in 1890. Um, it was actually very edited. It was interesting. But again, you know, as they've been edited, as they've been published in their editions further and further, um, they've, the edits have fallen away, especially as the 19th century gave way to the 20th and 21st century. People stopped um, caring so much about the properness of it all. So, yeah, I think the but most I can say about her is, to read her poetry. She says it all. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed trying to have some understanding of this woman and just to enjoy exploring her more. Um, and I think her poetry is so light. It's not heavy. It's, it's enjoyable to read. It is, it is truly enjoyable. Even if you're not that into poetry, some of her poems are literally like two lines long. Um, so I highly recommend we all go out, read a little poetry. Yeah. You have homework. Go do it. Well, enjoy a month. Optional. You have a month (laughs) and then we'll check back in. We'll make sure you did it. Exactly. (laughs) I like, I like that she's shrouded in mystery. Me too. And I like that it's almost (laughs) self-created. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know if it's intentional or not. I, she kind of just sounds like someone with a lot of anxiety, honestly. She does. She sounds very emotional and not, you know, not, oh, she's a woman. She's emotional. No, but, you but know, she, she sounds seems, She seems deeply empathic. feeling. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. Yeah. I agree. And I think, so it's, she, yeah, to me, sounds a little bit more like that than purposefully trying to be the ghost woman. But. Oh, I, I agree. But I, I think that she kind of, she was very mischievous. I think she, she didn't, I don't think she wouldn't have delighted in the mystery around her, you know? Right. Absolutely. And again, like these are my, and our interest discussions about Emily and there's, you know, she left, she left unintentionally her writings. And so I think there's, there's joy to be had in, in the exploration of them and, you know, your thoughts, uh, people's thoughts about, about her poetry and her work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Hey, thanks for bringing her to, to this month. <laughs> I mean, thanks for raising her to the collective awareness today. I, I, I she is somewhat there obviously, but I think yeah, she's, she's not the, she's not the, the least known person we've discussed. You know, um, <laughs> But she's one I had never looked that deeply into. Um, and I'm I'm grateful I, I had the chance to. I'm I'm glad it's um yeah, it's been a really fun experience for me to to look more into her. So Amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amazing. Yay. Well, this week, Emily Dick or this month, I guess, Emily Dickinson. <laughs> Emily Next Dickinson. month, who knows? You'll have to tune in to find out. Exactly. Hooray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.